You're listening to Shannon Taylor Talk. Heart to heart with your fascinating online friends around the globe. Well, is this is this what is resurging? The 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 ancient wisdom is resurging because the the world is in need. I mean, yes, clearly. I, I mean, we we're, all the all the the static structures are melting down. We have no way of communicating with each other properly, besides through the the anger and the we're not getting to the root of the problem. And so, isn't it time that philosophers took their place again? Well, we're trying. We're doing our best. I mean, thank you for the, you know, and thanks for, for, for encouraging me. I'm, I'm doing this, and believe me, the, it's, it's, it's made for a really interesting and challenging life. I'm not alone. I couldn't be doing this alone. There, there's a growing uh, profession in the ATPA, which, you know, I founded, co-founded, uh, trains philosophers, certifies philosophers to do this kind of work. We're in the, in the process now of, of building initiatives all over the world with partnerships with different organizations who see things just as you do. You know, the world we live in is, is very interesting and, and, and very challenging. As you say, things are changing, and tr- older traditions are becoming more current again because of the wisdom that people see in them. Te- you know, technology does not answer every human problem. In fact, it sometimes creates problems. Right. Our kids are spending way too much time watching TV and being wired to devices, which often, overuse of which will actually lead to cognitive impairments. I, I teach in, in a public university, and I see the results of, you know, this American, by and large, American, but spreading uh, problem of, of overuse of visual media, where kids are watching an average of four or five hours of TV a day from the time they're born, basically, they're thrown in front of some kind of a, you know, a screen, and they're surfing the net, and they're playing video games, and this actually reduces their functionality, it leads to difficulties later in reading, writing, and reasoning properly, then they get drugged with Ritalin, this is a brilliant solution, let's tranquilize them, you know, and so our education system is also in disarray, it's, it's not just the social system. So we have all these challenges, and America has pioneered globalization. America has led the way, you know, and prepared the world in many ways for the 21st century. So the problems that we see here, and some of which, you know, we're alluding to today, these problems I'm discovering to my shock are actually spreading throughout the global village. Japan is experiencing similar stuff. They have bullying in their schools, and they have socially dysfunctional kids who can't interact with each other healthily anymore because they're too wired up to virtual universes and they're losing this dimension of socialization or they don't see and or they don't see their parents enough because both parents are working and they're not at home so they have you know they become the equivalent of latchkey kids right. and it leads to all kinds of social problems and it was, it was it was shocking to me to encounter this in Japan which you know was a very very different country let's say you know 30 years ago, mm-hmm. thing is they become westernized. And as westernization spreads through globalization, it brings in its train a host of similar social problems. And, and illnesses. And, and illnesses, many of which are cultural. Mm-hmm. Obesity is a cultural mm-hmm. epidemic. You're not going to become, you know, you're not going to catch this from your neighbor if he sneezes on you, right? You're, right. It's a cultural thing. Uh, same thing with attention deficit disorders. These are culturally induced. And they're called epidemics because of the numbers of people who are afflicted by them. But, but they're not epidemics in the classic sense of epidemic diseases, which are usually transmitted from one person to another. And these things are transmitted from the culture itself. So we obviously have to go to the root in order to reverse them. Well, what what are we going to do with our education system, and how how can we um, how can we create leaders instead of followers, and and, and ignite the creative flame again, and uh, and not have such a system of a factory uh, factory mentality of education? 
Boy, that's a big question. How much time did we have? I'm to sorry. Discuss this? Uh, <laughs> I think that it's it's also important for uh, for our listeners to note that th- this problem did not happen over didn't come up overnight. Uh, in the 1980s, Alan Bloom wrote a best-selling book called The Closing of the American Mind. He saw what was going on. The problem really started in the late 60s. And I was a hippie back then, by the way. I was protesting. I thought it was, you know, we were doing the right thing, and we were, and we were. Um, and and certainly the hippie part with 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 love and and with with being an original person and and being tolerant of others and not forcing anything on anybody and being open-minded. It was that was a really beautiful time uh, while it lasted, which wasn't that long, but it was really great. Just last year was the 40th anniversary of the Summer of Love. You know that? No. Amazingly. So I remember those days, and, and there was a period there of, I think, tremendous kind of enlightenment where, where young people realized how big the world was and how wonderful the universe was and what a great place it could be if we changed our attitudes for the better, and many did. But things, you know, things never are static. So the radicals, unfortunately, got hold of the educational establishment, the people who were trained by essentially the European neo-Marxists, the Trotskyites, and it's a long story. I go into it in the middle way. I mean, the history is very clear. My point is, Shannon, this has happened on everybody's watch. This is not a party political issue. It's not like, you know, one party of the good guys here. I've been tracing the history of this, and it happened on, it started really during John LBJ, and it went through Nixon and Ford, and it happened on Reagan's watch, and it happened on Clinton's watch. I mean, it's not a party political issue. And whoever wins tomorrow, I pose that challenge to them. Are you going to be able to fix this? Because this this problem is now crippling the USA as a world power. Education is the single most important thing that happens in our lives. You know, children are either going to be empowered or, or, or disempowered by virtue of the education they receive or don't receive. And you know how bad things are in, in the developing world where we have child soldiers who are, you know, I mean, little boys are having guns put in their hands. Right. They're totally robbed of their childhoods. And in Asia uh, and also other parts of the developing world, we still have a sex trade with underage, you know, with minors. Young, young, young girls are being basically treated like sex slaves. These children belong in schools, and they belong in good schools, in order for us not to lose the greatness of their minds. And that's one extreme. And the other extreme is right here in the USA, where what was formerly the finest education system in the world has been deconstructed. And you use the word factory, and that's right. We're turning out zombies. We're turning out people who are basically mindless. It's a really, really devastating system. I work in it, and it's crushing. It's just a crushing system. So we have to change that. Who's going to change that? We have to have a president with the courage to appoint someone to actually revive what is great about education and make the American education system strong again. And I hope we get somebody before it's too late. What about the education system in certain parts of the country that don't allow for free thinking and uh, certain reading certain books and so forth? That still goes on today. It still does. And, you know, you know, the Scopes trial, if you remember this, you know, this famous battle between the creationists and the, you know, and the, and the Darwinians, this is still going on today. Uh, and there's still places where I that have to battle say, is being fought. I have to say, Lou, in my early childhood, I grew up like 30, mi- 30 miles from there. So, uh, Mm-hmm. So, well, then you know better than I do. I passed through there, but I haven't had to sit in the classroom, and we haven't had to fight that fight. That yeah. other fights to fight here in the north. Believe me, we have no shortage of battles to fight in the education front. Right. But that's one of them. So you have the experience. Yeah, and, and it's you know how, and you know how, mm-hmm. you don't. You're not allowed to have the certain voice or certain uh, free thinking, and, and to this day, it still has to go through certain. Uh, certain legislation like church officials and so forth in order to um to be able to be heard so that's the kind of thing that we're that we're fighting out you know in the on the ground today and yes well i know that battle is still going on that's one extreme 
And the history of science, and has really been, you know, the West's uh, contribution to global civilization, although now uh, it's so widespread that we have all kinds of people from all over the world who are doing great science and winning Nobel Prizes and pushing the frontiers of knowledge in every direction. Mm -hmm. But the real, the scientific revolution happened originally in the West, and uh, as we know it today, modern science was born in the West, and that too was a struggle. If you look at Galileo, you remember he was, right. um, you know, he was persecuted for right. for basically doing astronomy, and you know this was a, a, at one time contrary to dogma. So the Inquisition got on his case. Uh, he tried to separate physics really from theology, and he got into trouble. But he succeeded eventually in doing that. And similarly, Thomas Hobbes got into trouble, a contemporary of Galileo's, because he tried to separate politics from theology. He also got the death sentence. They tried to burn him at the stake, but they didn't quite manage. And the history of science is like that. Darwin separated biology from theology. The, 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 the thing is, and what really perturbs me more than, more than anything, is that a lot of this conflict is simply unnecessary. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the greatest scientists in the history of thought also believe in God, and there's no contradiction there. That's, that's the thing that really uh, I, I find so bizarre, is that there are great, great minds who, who've understood that the universe is such a fascinating and complicated and mysterious place. It has to be, it's so, it's so much greater than we know, and our minds at the end of the day are you know, only able to discover some of it, and, and, and by, by no means all of it. So this implies that there's other greatness out there, and that there are greater powers than ours in the world. It doesn't prove the existence of God, but it makes it perfectly feasible for any intelligent person to believe both in science and in, in you know, and in divinity. I don't see a contradiction there. So this is unfortunately a battle that doesn't even need to be fought. Right. Um, don't you think that we're coming to a place where science and theology have to rejoin again? Yes. I, I mean, absolutely. Because we're back to what we're talking about, which is really, I think, the idea of the whole person. Mm -hmm. And for a person to be whole, then there can't be this conflict going on within them, and there's, and there's no need for it. They can be reconciled. There are a lot of people working very hard to do this. And I, I mean, I think we want, on the one hand, to uphold freedom of religious worship. I certainly am a fan of that. I don't belong to any particular religion myself, but I think it's really important that people have freedom to worship God how, however they choose. If indeed they choose to worship God, they should be able to do that, provided that, that they're not harming others in the process. You understand? We have to draw the line somewhere. Right. So if people want to worship peacefully, then that, that should be fine. They should have the freedom to do this, or not to worship at all. They should have the freedom to do this. But we need to celebrate that kind of liberty and have tolerance, but we cannot tolerate intolerance. That's the real paradox. If we're going to have freedom, we, we also have to have respect for scientific inquiry on the one hand, you know, and respect for religious devotion on the other. But again, in the, the human being is great enough to harbor both of those without any inherent contradiction. Are we, con are we connecting um, the right and the left brain? I mean, well, I mean, no, I mean, I, okay. Um, you know, in our society, it's you're creative or you're, or you're logical, you know, it's not yeah. that we are, are one whole, whole human being. And, and I think that we have to get back to a place where, where everything, and it's okay to be scientific and, and creative and mathematical and everything and, and linear and abstract in a way. Um, well, both. I mean, exactly yeah. as you say, it's not either or, it's both and. I think some people will have certain preferences or certain abilities which lie in one, more on mm -hmm. one side than the other, and we have to make opportunities you know, for those abilities to be expressed. That's clear. C.P. Snow wrote a book back in the, uh, in the 40s, I think, called, uh, um, gee, I can't remember, Quarters of Power. And it was in that book that he first noticed the schism 
that was taking place in the universities between arts and science, where in the pre in, pre in previous generations, in previous cultures, there wasn't necessarily such a schism. You didn't have to choose arts or science. You could exercise both. Naturally, there, some people will have preferences on one side or the other, and as you suggest, this is probably due to, you know, ultimately what's going on on one side or another of their brains. But I think it's really important for us to educate children as broadly as possible and give them an opportunity to study you know, subjects that will stimulate both sides of the brain equally well, and then let's see what they, what they in the end gravitate to. But we shouldn't foreclose one in favor of the other. And I see this problem in the universities, too, where kids are pushed into either science or arts. And one of the greatest courses I ever saw was given by a, a, a physics professor who taught physics for art students. And he was able, it was a lot of work for him, because his challenge was to teach physics and to teach some really important concepts without any mathematics whatsoever. But he was able to do this, and so he got a lot of art students interested in physics because they realized the ideas were very beautiful and that mathematics is just a language, you know, for expressing those ideas. But it's really possible to explain a lot of things in science without math. For example, okay, to give people, you know, a better feeling about it. But at the end of the day, it may also be uh, the case that, you know, women have more connections between the two halves of the brain. It appears, so research is, is indicating the corpus callosum, which joins the, you know, it's this bundle of fibers that connects the two hemispheres, appears to be thicker in, in women. The brains, our brains are a little bit different. So this would account for a lot of perhaps intuitive abilities that women have, knowing without knowing how you know and things like this. Who knows what brain research is going to reveal? But definitely we need to have arts and sciences together.